0: Welcome to Indigenous Action, where we dig deep into critical issues impacting our communities throughout occupied North America.
1: This is an autonomous, anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws-out analysis towards total liberation.
2: So take your seat by this fire, and may the bridges we burn together light our way.
0: Part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network, channelzero.com.
1: Hello, hello, this is Bearcat. Uh, welcome to the Indigenous Action Podcast. Uh, today we have our guest, Amanda Lickers. I am co-hosting today with uh, our other regular host, Klee. Um, we'll be restructuring our podcast a little bit, and so we'll hopefully be giving you some new things to think about and um, make things a little bit easier to listen to and to engage with for our audience members. Um, I'm Bearcat. Uh, I'm Shoshone and Paiute, and I live in the so-called Southwest America, so-called Americas. <laughs> um, and I'd like to welcome our guest today, Amanda Lickers, uh, a real badass coming to us from, well, you know, what? I'm not even going to attempt the name. Go ahead and uh, introduce yourself.
2: Uh, My name is Yigotserrari Amanda Lickers. I'm a Seneca of Six Nations of the Grand River, living here in Joni Jhonijokjage, beautiful Ganyagahaga territory in a sovereign Mohawk nation. Happy to be representing the Haudenosaunee Confederacy here, you know, as a community member. And um, it's always fun to get with other troublemakers. Yeah, I use um, she and they, um, two-spirit, queer, Um, anti-authoritarian, and um, that kind of stuff. So, (laughs) yeah, just Nyala, thank you so much for hosting me today.
0: Yate, this is Klee, and welcome. It's so great to reconnect with you. I'm really excited about the conversation today. Today's show, we're focusing on climate justice, colonialism, green capitalism, and land trauma. And this will be put out on what is recognized as Earth Day or marked as Earth Day, which has always rubbed me the wrong way that, you know, settler colonizers just set aside one day to honor the Earth. Um, But that's not a new critique. We um, To just get right into it, you know, our first question for you is that Um, critiques of climate justice are not new and you're no stranger to them Uh, there's a video floating around out there of you confronting 350.org's Bill McKibben uh, directly about colonialism and capitalist violence which is awesome so I recommend people to check that out online Um, you know you've challenged white supremacy capitalism colonialism within the climate justice movement for years uh, and the the main question I have for you right now is what, if anything has changed uh, as you've seen this movement shift?
2: Yeah. I mean, if, get your antidepressants ready, like this is not going to be positive. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Like I think, um, you know, like a post standing rock context is very bleak. Um, It's just like the machine has gotten better, uh, at Main everything has become just so much more disconnected from grassroots movements, and even what is a grassroots movement has almost shifted in its definition. There's NGOs in everything. Um, at- co-optation is so fast. It's like, it's to the point where, and it's also disheartening because, like you said, these critiques of things like the People's Climate March, this is not new. We've been doing this for 10 years at least, and people before us for 20, 30, 40, however many years, like our ancestors for generations have been holding down these front lines. So, Why do we have to continuously try to re-educate and interrupt the brainwashing with every new generation? Okay, guess what? You know, NGOs, it is just one side of the coin of the settler state. Their job is to broker deals between industry and government and cut out indigenous people time and time again, uh, and it's 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 very sad. and it's not just limited to this kind of sellout vibes. It's also in, you know, on the front lines and the rape culture and patriarchy and cis heteronormativity that exists in the streets and makes it actually unsafe for people to be able to call out with dissent. And dissenting voices, critical thinking is seen as divisive and lateral violence. And when we speak to the systemic, you know the systemic violences we're experiencing. Hey, this is this is how white supremacy is coded as a system. Oh, well, you're just being divisive. It's it's the exact same it's the exact same critique that we've been making. You know, and it's actually sad now because it, at least you know at in the beginning of the 2010s there was still the leftover of the anti globalization movement and there was still that kind of. Spirit of rioting, you know, like where the hell are the riots? Like it's just come get your blimp, come get your flag, come get your photo with Justin Trudeau at the head of the climate march and go work for an NGO. That's it. There is there is no climate justice movement.
1: Hey Amanda, uh tell us how you really feel. <laughs>
2: right it's like there's only an indigenous sovereignty (laughs) movement that's it
1: (laughs) oh man i feel you so much on 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 all of it and yeah it is it is pretty disheartening but it's good to hear i guess to um relate to other people who are also you know in the mud with us and agree and and see all this shit too it's like we're not just imagining it we're not you know being you know any kind of way if that's just that's what what it really is so Mm -hmm. um what are some of the implications and consequences that you see that come along with things like uh, greenwashing and green capitalism now that we're talking a little bit more about um, our, our more contemporary struggles and and the directions that we're going and the new, the newer, I guess, front lines that we're seeing that are, you know, basically just a repetition of the old, but um, Mm. what are some of the implications that you see?
2: I think one of the things um, that I feel like just is not hitting home When it comes to like the way that greenwashing is morphing into, okay, sustainable energy, renewable energy, like continue the settler project, like settler colonialism is not sustainable. There is no greenwashing genocide. And so when the system is still based in exploitation of peoples and lands as resources – When people's and lands are seen as resources then we're not we're not getting anywhere and i think what is happening is just an incredibly effective system linked to globalization that is assimilating our energy and our movements into the status quo um and with that you know it's it's like i think we're going to talk about this later around tactics but Even, you know, the reality is that the grass, what is left of the grassroots is now, unless you're on a front line that's based in sovereignty, like based in, you know, indigenous sovereignty and like land back struggles directly, um, part of those historical and contemporary movements. I feel that campaign to campaign style organizing is not working. Um, we're just raising a lot of money to hand over to the state for bail and putting people in harm's way just to deal with an epidemic of mental health and a lack of resources and support, putting people um, in the teeth of the state to be chewed out and spit off, spit away, to be targeted for COINTELPRO, uh, to have their f- lives ripped away from them. Um, and, you know, and at the same time, you know, 350.org, Greenpeace honor the earth, whoever you want to say, you know, they're making, they're making money off of this. They're building media campaigns and they're, they're part of a larger capitalist system that will benefit. And so for me, I feel like we need to stop setting people up to just be like kidnapped. Basically we got to stop Because there are better ways to do it that are not on social media. And for example, like a historical example that is safe to talk about is like 2013, Elsie Bukduk, Mi'kmaq Territory, you know, they were fighting anti-fracking, There, it was anti-fracking resistance, fighting uh, Texas-based SWN, and, you know, they took grassroots approaches and they didn't do showy lockdowns where there's a bunch of media and there's 30 people getting arrested and a bunch of cops coming. What happened was, it, you know, uh, equipment was being destroyed. A lot of equipment was being destroyed and it was being chalked up to the beavers, man. It was, it was awesome secret society shit. You know what I'm saying? And that was effective. That was effective, you know? And it's just, why get caught? Why put your face? Why put your name? Why put your likes and your social status and your, your ass on the line here? You know, it's, especially there's people who are the first ones to volunteer to be arrested and sometimes they're the most vulnerable. And so what does it mean when also the privileges are mismatched? You know, it's not white people lining up and there are, there are white people lining up and like, that's fine. Go ahead and do that civil disobedience thing. That's your vibe. Go ahead. You know, but that's not what catches attention. Money catches attention, you know? Um, anyway, so I'll just leave it at that for. I
0: I wanted to just get a little deeper into the greenwashing and green capitalism component, and perhaps Bearcat, you might want to add to this because, you know, we're looking at these proposals like the green new deal. Uh, that has been proposed and even the sort of, you know, what I would consider a pseudo radical response of the red new deal by the red nation, the Marxist group that has been fairly problematic in this region. Um, You know, but when we talk about greenwashing, I mean, we have to be clear that that means, you know, Prisons being green, you know, it means you know uh, composting at prisons. It means the the U.S. military being one of the largest uh, users of green technologies because they want to be autonomous or self sufficient in the battlefield. You know, um, and it also looks like part of the response to the war in Ukraine, where the Defense Production Act is being invoked by the Biden administration to. You know, say, well, we need. This is one of the reasons we need to disentangle ourselves from corporate globalization and be energy independent, which is targeting further targeting indigenous lands. uh, Here, you know, I'm not trying to say that to make a distinction between like the nationalist agendas, but really look at the implications of um what this larger concept of climate justice and just transition means if we're talking about it in the context of one settler and resource colonialism and two uh global capital industrial capitalism so you know it'd be great to hear y'all's thoughts about that
2: yeah i could add to that like i think like from the very beginning it's you know there's, it's a false hope of it, of just rebranding, you know, where they're like, okay, you know, we want this autonomy. We're going to move towards windmills. We're going to do, you know, however much hydro, whatever, at any of these, any of these, even, you know, it comes down to solar panels. Like all, all, there is no green, you know, resource extraction, period. There is not. Even hydroelectric, and this is a huge issue here in so-called Quebec, where it's literally run by the, by the state and they're damming out traditional territory. They're selling hydroelectricity to the United States and, you know, the indigenous communities are being cut out of negotiations. It's undermining sovereignty, everything, you know? So it's, it's like, this is the metamorphosis into the next stage of resource colonization, where just it looks a little bit different. It, it has a different face. It's a different, it's a rebrand, it's a rebranding is what it is. And for people to really talk about this as climate justice is missing the mark of what that term is supposed to actually reflect when we think about justice. And it's just like, it's really, we need to have a stronger like abolitionist perspective when it comes to the connection between colonization and environmental destruction, and that we will not be able to overcome this without coming to the roots of colonization and attacking it straight ahead. And unfortunately, I think with the type of visibility that has come like post, post standing Rock, mm-hmm. you have people who are like uplifting like Deb, what's her name? Deb, Deb Holland mm-hmm. was her name, you know? And even, uh, what's the Biden's co? Like she's actually from Montreal and she's yeah. like a big. Kamala? Camilla Harris, yeah, it's just like people are getting confused about what representation actually means that and equating it to freedom and equating it to liberation and equating it to harm reduction even when it's actually just a new, you know, it's like a narcissistic manipulation that's just going next level. It's a continued abuse. And, you know, Camilla Harris has like this legacy within, you know, the prison system. And it's not, it's just, it's, it's just, it's just, again, it's just like people thinking they're going to vote in some type of change. This is not, this is not it. No, you know, and I'm tired of seeing all of these movements and our colleagues and folks just putting so much energy, you know, wood into their fires, you know, like we have our own, and I feel this way too, about the Academy. And it's like, we have our own solutions. We have our own, our, our knowledge systems are our lodges on our longhouses and our hogans. And like, we have our own work to do in terms of revitalizing our, our, our structures. And everyone is just like caught up in the rat race. And I get it, you know, people have whatever, they've got their kids and they got their situations, but at a certain point, you know, why is everything being just built within the system? And so I feel like with the greenwashing, Whether it's from the nation state of the US, which is like a joke to think of the United States of ever becoming environmentally sustainable, you know, just the sheer impact alone of the United States, but then it's like, sustainable for who and sustainable for what you know and it's like what is this word sustainability is starting to become like encoded as settler white supremacy and i think that we need to start critiquing that more and actually pushing for a no it's not sustainable and things naturally have a life cycle like as we know you know as the seasons change death is natural you know an end is natural and um it's difficult but that's these are the things that we have to you know grapple with
0: and and that's so much of what is celebrated on earth day where people are like oh yeah we're um homesteading with our sustainable practices and composting and looking at permaculture or dry farming techniques when it's settlers doing that they're just sustaining Mm -hmm. settler occupation and making it green which ultimately you know as you said, green genocide. It green the ongoing settler colonial violence, and you know that's definitely one of the things that we've sort of critiqued for years. Is that no matter how green you make your you know your lifestyles, capitalism and colonialism are completely un- and totally unsustainable. And you know part of the reason I was trying to drag you into this, pull you into this conversation. Berkan on the level is because your community is facing that right now with lithium mining, and our communities have faced that with the legacy of uranium mining, where you know, part of these agreements and part of these propositions from these nation states throughout the world is that, you know, um, nuclear power could be considered if you yeah. listen to the scientists as a green technology, which, you know, if you look at, of course, the from the mining to the waste, the whole nuclear production cycle, we say no. It's a it's a completely yeah. deadly lie.
2: No, absolutely. And it's it's just like even with this homesteading permaculture, you know, not only is it just reifying and, and creating that sort of greenwashing around settlerhood, but also it's it's ensuring uh, settler futurity. And I think like this needs to be challenged head on. Um and they're using techniques this is also too where the racism uh, comes as part of that where indigenous sciences are not seen as progressive meanwhile western sciences are bringing us to the point of climate c- catastrophe in less than 5 600 years you know this who's really you know advanced right and permaculture this is an indigenous science this is an indigenous technology and it's all about and any literacy of the land even bioremediation techniques how to pull out heavy metals, how to clean the water. A lot of these are actually traditional indigenous knowledge and sciences. And so it's actually revitalizing our knowledge systems. And so they're using our ancestors' findings, applying those methods to the territory for their own settler futurity. Okay. And this is where it just, it needs to be repositioned as if it's not anti-colonial, then it's not doing anything. And it's, there's a, such a invisibility of the reality of indigenous sovereignty. And I feel that there's just the reproduction of terra nullius mentally is just, it's, it's so huge, you know, and this idea of the land, you know, being inanimate as an object and that, you know, it's an empty earth, uninhabited by, you know, we're flora and fauna as indigenous peoples, you know, all these types of things. And it comes anyway, even it ties even to even something like Marxism that views the land as a uh, means of production. And it's always about uh, an economic system based in mon- mo- on a monetary system and a fiat currency and a settler state. And Marx, he came over and he studied the Haudenosaunee. And that's where these motherfuckers begin their ideas is all off of us. This idea of socialism, we already invented it. Democracy, we already invented it. Like, we don't need Western political theory to develop an anti-colonial or anti-capitalist analysis. Our ancestors are the anti-capitalist analysis, you know? And so whether it's Diné technology or, you know, Shoshone technology, you know, political systems, it's, it's within our nation's and we have confederacies. You go from coast to coast to coast. We have confederacies. We have nation to nation agreements. We have it. We had this situation. Like, I mean, how do we have? We're connected by the corn, north to south. So, I'm yeah, tired of it. No, there's no need to reinvent the wheel here. Um, that's that's
1: a big uh, thing. I I think people tend to overthink it and think that there's no that they're looking in a direction that there is no um, that there's no reason for to be struggling, you know, um, with the, the fight up at Thacker Pass, um, and that's my territorial, my ancestral territorial homeland, and, um, I see a lot of the people when they're, you know, online and stuff, and they're just hearing about little tidbits and stuff being put out by these certain orgs and things, and their first thing is, oh my god, you know, contact Deb Holland. Uh, you know, you need to let Deb Holland know, and little do they know that. I mean, if they had taken the time, and if even the people in these organizations had taken the time to, um, you know, look at the current um, lawsuits and things that are going on, they will see that Deb Holland is on the other side of those lawsuits. Like, she is literally has the power to put a stop to all of that as the um, head of the Department of Interior. And... Um, she is not. Not only is she not putting a stop to it, she is sicking her team of high-paid, you know, badass l- lawyers and all that after our people, our grassroots people, our people, our elders, our people that don't have the the means to at all, um, you know, go into a legal battle with you know the with Deb Holland. And so I think it's kind of uh, it's it's not funny, but at the same time, it's like sometimes you just got to you know almost just want to laugh because it's like fuck, what are we really doing? Um, and, and like you were saying, uh, and it goes into that whole ploy of representation, like y'all are not being represented, you are being marketed to. And you are being marketed to in front of a whole audience of people So for a purpose. And, and it's becoming very, um, and we saw this with like the January 6th, uh, the, the, the riots or, or whatever they would like to call it in D.C., and uh, we saw so many of the the orgs and the org-minded people <laughs> completely throwing a fit like, oh, this is this is terrible. And meanwhile, we're over here like, okay, <laughs> do your thing. And, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, the catching but, the popcorn. Um, yeah, right. And, uh, but um, that's when I really started taking note of the way that it seems that our viewpoints almost align if you were to look at it from the outside. But on a, in the inside, <laughs> when you're in like the veins of it, they're completely opposites, but they're so opposite. They're almost back around, you know? Um, and it's, it can be very confusing and this is, this is a point that they are playing on. This is a point that they are actively seeking out and co-opting. And these are the things that we need to not only educate ourselves on, but be aware of and be, um, on the lookout for the tactics. And I think it's really interesting. I would like to hear um, more what you think about the tactics that are going on. And, um, if there's anything that, you know, you could, or would like to share with our audience members on how to do that actively, because uh, as people on the front lines, you you don't always, um, you're not always able to to share some of the things. And so from people that aren't on the front lines, but do things that um, make our lives difficult. um, This is, there's, there's a huge disconnect there. And at some point we're gonna have to start, you know, finding ways to connect those things, so. But uh yeah I I completely hear everything you're saying and and it's just like it's frustrating I hear the frustration and I agree with it and I, and I see it's valid <laughs>
2: Yeah. I appreciate that. Burkett. Like, um, I think like, uh, like, um, I saw you post that about Deb Holland when, uh, she got in, when she got elected or whatever. I'm, uh, on Instagram as scrimp scrap. I don't know if you're, oh, okay. I, okay. I don't use it too much, but I interact with your uh, account a couple times and I was like, this is exactly, I was so not shocked to hear, to hear that. Um, and it's like, it's really about that assimilation piece. And I think that all too often we just get sort of get po- caught up in these politics of whatever recognition and visibility representation and like obviously yes it is powerful to see you know yourself represented in a world where you're constantly erased like we're dealing with the death culture of colonial capitalism on the daily you know but also you know where you know I want to see myself being represented like within spaces of my choosing and like within cultural spaces and within you know fellow like indigenous spaces and and i want to see you know non-indigenous people actually talking about invisibilizing the settler colonial project instead of leaving it all on us all the time and that's the type of visibilization i want to see i want to see like the abuse actually be talked about and no longer kept like in hiding in secret and i think that there's just so much work to be done um on ter- in terms of tactics like uh do you mean in terms like in terms of like how like what those guys were doing like with that January 6th stuff or like more in terms of like uh, a frontline style.
1: Honestly, I see a lot more of our own people doing the work for them. And it's like, what the hell (laughs) you guys want to talk shit about us about, Oh, you guys are divisive. You're doing the state's job for them. It's not, it's like, you're literally doing your job for them. And it's uh, things like that, like um, in connection into that, I guess.
2: Like policing each other and all this kind of stuff. I think, Part of it, what I've, when I've seen it really strong, it's like, I think it's really difficult because, you know, we have all this intergenerational trauma that we're navigating and it's really difficult when you come up into conflict with folks and maybe you have different ideas about how to approach something. And especially with this conversation around violence or nonviolence, and even what is violence, you know, like it's a big tired conversation, I think. And, you know it's very difficult, especially when you're dealing in intergenerationally where you might have different perspectives. There's always obviously too, like, but, you know, from the Haudenosaunee perspective, it's like with a warrior societies, you know, their job is to carry the burden of peace. You know, you're not just fighting for no reason, you know, and you're not fighting to kill or wipe each other out. It's to protect yourself. It's a form of self-defense. And just like, you know, tying to rape culture as well, like, if you're, if you have to defend yourself, you have to defend yourself. And that needs to be respected. Um, and really understanding like our goals, I think is really helpful to try to be like, okay, well, if our goal is to say, stop a project, then what's the most effective way to do that? That's the safest for everyone. And I think there's a lot of internalized, just, you know, there's a lot of just, we've been so historically policed, um, as Indigenous peoples, that there's just such a sense sometimes of like, oh, we have to do it a certain way. Like we need to do a petition and we need to go knock on Deb Holland's door and like ask, you know, President Biden, please, please help us. Like, obviously not, you know, and this is just why something like the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in Canada, you know, it there was a positive thing that came out of it. And my friend Autumn Godwin was talking about this, um, you know, that survivors got to actually speak to their experiences. Right. Um, but also, and just like with any Royal commission, whether it's deaths in custody in Australia, indigenous people, there being killed by the state doing a Royal commission. It's so that way the, you know, the perpetrator can investigate themselves and then they can put it on a shelf and they can say, we did something, you know, so we need to really think about what is the system change that we're, we're looking for. And part of that is, I think also having some patience when people don't have the same perspective and trying, how do we educate each other and how, in a, in a gentle way, but not too gentle either. You know what I mean? Sometimes we need to get a little rough and kind of push back, but then also to sort of like, maybe even also showing by example too, can also be another thing because there is a lot of misinformation and stuff like that happening with the internet and the way that social media and everything. And like, people are like the Russians, whatever. I don't know, you know, like at the end of the day, it could all be state generated AI bots. Like we don't know, you know? And like, so what is a priority for in-person relationships? Who are people accountable to? Um, how do we hold each other accountable and, you know, also like, where are we putting in that work? And so for me, I'm really inspired by some of my colleagues at the Buckskin Babes and, you know, who are doing language revitalization. They're focusing on traditional farming, seed saving, you know, uh, animal hide processing, and just like really too, like, if when you gear it into that land based relationship, it, every, everybody comes, like, the communi- community comes to that. People are very hungry for that connection to the land. And I think that's why even some people find themselves on front lines because, you know, it's kind of like going out on the bush and it's, you have a sense of purpose and you have this kind of togetherness. And I think creating those environments for us to share and learn together um, that maybe aren't always based in a, reaction, a, a reactionary uh, perspective, not to say that it, we have to react, we have to respond, we have to resist, but also to plan and to prepare um, for what we want to see. So I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but there you go. <laughs> it's,
1: it's very interesting. And the ties between um, the ways that we are reflected in the land and the re- land relates to us as well, Um, there's a very strong connection there. So of course, like when things start getting, you know, so chaotic, um, especially like, it seems like the last thing you would want to do is go out on the front lines and get shot at or, you know, arrested or this or that. But it seems like a lot of our people are um, feeling pulled to those spaces. And I Mm -hmm. feel like there's a relationality there and that's very real with us. And, um, but yeah, uh, there's a very strong tie there. Um, It's it's funny that, you, well not funny, but like uh, it's interesting that you mentioned um, a lot of the work being done around um, like sexual violence and uh, I guess authoritarian violence and um, how that relates also to state violence. Because uh, one of the things, one of the tactics, I guess I would see, um, and, it, and it is a, a touchy subject. So, but acknowledging that uh, we'll go ahead and go into it. Cause that's what we do. Um, this whole idea that I've seen that the people that are, you know, a cab, a cab and fuck the police, all this kind of shit. Like are the first ones that will disbelieve a, a victim, you know, that when they come forward with the truth, with their truth and, um, and say, Hey, this is what's going on and I need help. They're the first ones that will turn around and be like, well, where's your proof? <laughs> and it's like, that is a state-based authoritarian um, tactic. How is that going to work for us? How has that ever worked for us? Um, And and these are some of the things that I see in in relationality with uh, land-based trauma. And these are things that we have control over to stop doing. Um, And I feel like there is a lot of work that's being done around that, but uh, I feel like there's so many people still on the fence about it. And, you know, Oh, it's a, he said, she said, Oh, there's two sides to every story. Like, nah, there's really not. (laughs) There's there's not. And uh, when you said like, uh, we need to take a gentle approach but also sometimes not a gentle i feel what you're saying with that because sometimes it's just like no sometimes we're being expected as femmes or as you know women that we have to take a certain we have to have a certain gentleness a certain grace about it but at the same time like back in the day that was not the case like (laughs) that was not the case at all that was not our role and that was not an expectation that is a a settler um requirement or set you know something set by the state and it's not their service either. So these things are important to, to talk about.
0: I just wanted to just real quick jump in and say that I don't think um, gender-based violence interpersonal violence apologism is, um, unique to radical left, radical leftists though. I think it happens across the board, mm-hmm. but yeah, the way that people sure. get a pass for, you know, sticking a badge on for radical politics is sort of, you know, I think what needs to be contended or a big part of what needs to be contended with as well. Absolutely. Um, and I, I wanted to like, get a little bit more into and connect these points about something that you've written about. And I think you're noted for, especially formulating and articulating early on, um, what has become widely more widely known and adopted in, um, land-based, you know, critiques and around land back is this idea of land back, or I mean, land trauma. And and maybe you could break down a little bit about what you mean by that. I know you've written quite a bit and talked about that, Um, but how is that understanding connected to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, Two Spirit, and trans um, struggles, and maybe sort of bringing that together? Because I, I think this important this or this topic about sexual violence and gender based violence is really a key component of this as well, especially when we're talking about Deb Haaland, who on one hand is, you know, leading the charge for, you know, on on one level, there's this sort of um, strategy of picking low hanging fruit and protecting areas that aren't as critical, critically involved in the overall infrastructure of the US um, uh, energy production. And then two, you know, Pushing for more policing as a response to missing and murdered indigenous women as you know, a lot of indigenous folks are celebrating the actions of the Biden administration to address this issue here in the US context. So, you know, on one hand, they're like, you know, opening up more oil and gas lease sales than the first, you know few months of the Trump administration's or first year of Trump administration. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact you know, statistic. I think Biden signed more oil and gas leases in his first year than Trump did for whatever that matters. Um, but yeah, so if, the question again is, um, can you talk about land trauma and how this understanding is connected to a missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, uh, two-spirit and trans?
2: yeah for sure Clee. yeah I'm gonna try to address all these things um to one um what you were talking about Bearcat about that connection with the land and being reflected um in the land as well like that made me think of something that Frida Hewson has said from uh, the Wet'suwet'en Nation over at Unistoten. and uh you know she would always say too like you know of course there's calls for supporters to show up there and and uh go through the protocol if if they're, ga- if they're given access, but she would also say like, you know, your ancestors are waiting for you in your homelands and what you do to protect your territory helps us protect our territory, you know, and that also connects to, I had the opportunity to go to so-called Australia in like 2015 or 16, I think it was, or 17, I don't know, years anymore. They all just bleed together. And, um, you know, some of the, some of the, you know, uh, indigenous folks there, they were talking about, how our sacred fires are connected uh, across, across, across the world, you know? So when you are having a sacred fire, like it's connected to the other sacred fires that are happening at that same time. And so I think it's really important to put that time and energy into our own home fires and what does that look like? And what does that mean? And what are our our ancestral territories and what are our responsibilities um, to our traditional territories and to, you know, like, obviously, yes, there's an interconnection, but also you can be just as effective sometimes staying home so i just wanted to throw that out there um and on the point of like i definitely feel you Cleo, what you're saying uh leftist spaces are not the only ones but um it's definitely a problem a, a hip a, like a hypocritical type of problem and almost maybe because there's such a heightened politicization within some of these spaces that it becomes like this political thing they're like oh he said she said and people want to debate it or whatever kind of reaction they're having whereas in some of these maybe even normy spots like they might even handle it sometimes better i don't know but irregardless i think what it comes down to is politics being like a shorthand for values when really it's an aesthetic what's what's come to be now where we are is largely aesthetic and it's fashionable and it's um you know it's a pokemon set basically and it's that's that's the vibe that i'm noticing um more and more and And even with and i think it's really connected to the rise of social media and the development and the normalcy of social media and that idea of like you know rolling up to the blockade just to get your selfie and you know all these types of things and like even just the roles that white saviors insert themselves into our communities through anti-capitalist movements through anarchist movements um and you know to be so in support of climate justice allegedly and then they're coming in and doing all kinds of predatory stuff and i think and it's also too it's not just it's not just outsiders it's also our own community and that's when it becomes the hardest and it's something that we're constantly dealing with and like really at the end of the day um you know and we had to do this at the high camp uh we're notified that there was an abuser and i had to i asked them to leave and it's like but also like it's always a small few who are going to ask them to leave, you know? And like, sometimes it could, maybe there's dynamics where some people aren't safe to do it. Like they, it will be unsafe, you know? And so just how do we also normalize identifying predatory behavior um, and sharing that information with one another and also how to deescalate a situation and exit either bounce by force or like, in a way that is as safe as possible for the survivors in the space. And so how to do that and just sort of building those skills, you know, that should be right along with any other frontline skill is how to, how to handle these types of situations. And also it's gets complicated because sometimes you people have relationships and there might be people who are being outed as abusers who are close with the hosts and you're on their territory then what, you know? And, and I think this is the really difficult thing that, um, you know, I was, you know, and I've been, and it's, it's hard to see people who you, who you thought would do better and, and hold a safer space, like fail to do that, you know, at times. Um, but like, I think it's also like very difficult to assign, you know, individual responsibility when we have a collective responsibility. And so how do we actually enact that collective responsibility and hold each other and hold a space accountable? Um, I think it's a lot of work that requires having a trauma-informed approach um, and actually what does survivor centrism look like and how do we also educate people on consent? You know, and how do we normalize and discuss and visibilize processes of consent? And that's what I really like with a lot of land-based practices is it's very much based in consent protocols with the territory um, and with the people around you. And, like, things can get, you know – really like things can get hairy really quickly you know if if you get sustained an injury in the bush or you know if you 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 can also you're like just things can go wrong you know you're at the whim of the natural world right so having that closeness and the ability to communicate with one another and all those types of all those types of things so I think it's like how do we combat that idealization of what is what do our decolonial spaces look like but then also like how do we identify predatory behavior and and even you know recognize when when it's happening around us and I think it's really it's really tricky and there's no like ABC set to get it done um anyway so that was for the first half of that and then on, on to like so discussing land trauma I would say like I like I guess like you know like I guess I like, like coined this phrase but it's also I like, I would consider it a community term that Came out of discussion and dialogue with, you know, peers, relatives, friends, and talking about, especially within, you know, as Indigenous people who are focusing on land-based work, um, you know, especially trying to prevent extractive industry on our territory, um, and just dealing with the repercussions of that, and even, like, in conversation with, you know, indigenous peoples from north to south east to west right and like talking about land trauma for the longest time i didn't really have a definition it was just something that other indigenous people automatically we would feel you would be like oh yeah i know what you mean by that and like the ways that our territories are being destroyed and how that makes us feel and this mental health impact and like not only that but then the cultural and Um, nationhood and sovereignty-based impacts of our sacred sites being under attack, you know, and what happens when even maybe certain ceremonies or or, uh, protocols maybe are being under threat because of of threats onto the territory, onto those sacred sites. So that's really what, you know, land trauma is about, is about that embodied, um, those embodied feelings as Indigenous peoples I've seen like some rebranding or whatever from the settler side talking about climate anxiety, (laughs) which I thought was kind of funny. was Mm -hmm. like, all right, maybe that's more accessible for people, (laughs) non-natives or like getting their climate anxiety, but for us, you know, we have that land-body connection, and I think when it comes to like you know missing and murdered, um, uh, Erin Marie Cosmo, who's a Two Spirit um, Métis artist uh, with Native Youth Sexual Health Network, formerly. And, um, you know, they would always talk, they, they have this piece of art and it's like titled, my body is not terra nullius. And, um, you know, even in the environmental violence toolkit, Vanessa Gray from Amjanong talks about that when our view of the land, um, becomes so low, then the view of our women also becomes low. And it's that land body connection. And it's also that gender, you know, connection too, where, the land is something that nurtures us and that gives us life. You know um, we literally talk about the land as mother earth. This is our origin place. Um, You know, they provide for us everything that we need. And um, in a lot of ways that's kind of modeling those nurturing relationships of like, you know, from our families. Right. And so what it should be anyway. And so it's like that idea, you know, of terra nullius, whether it's on the land or that idea of terra nullius is being projected onto our bodies, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a means of degradation. And so I also think that, um, you know, when it comes to like intimate partner violence and gender based violence, um, you know, as indigenous peoples, like who are experiencing land trauma, like that also means that we're going to have, like, uh, we're going to have like a struggle with our mental health. We're going to have like, it's like, I think it's very difficult to have models for healthy relationships sometimes within our own communities. And it's very difficult to deal with that when people are, are like reenacting cycles of trauma and cycles of abuse and perpetuating that on one another. And I think it's really difficult to be able to just, You know just break free from that and just like okay yeah you know i'm gonna just enter this relationship with this person and like whether they're queer or not you know um intimate partner violence happens in queer community as well and it's something that is i think it's a lot bigger than just like our own individual experiences but it's also part of a culture you know Mm-hmm. And this is where I think, like you know, really looking at the links between rape culture and taranulias can can help us to understand how these systems are playing out in our relationships and on our bodies. Um, and I think also that you know, with this idea of you know land trauma, also comes the the recognition that our territories are being exploited. And you know, people have talked about this for so long, and that relationship of exploitation um being based into the, the territory also means um that exploitation is going to be the point of relating to one another. And so that's going to increase, you know, rates of gender-based violence. And when it comes to policing agencies, and I was just like shocked when I heard you saying that like Indi- Indian country in the States is like celebrating more cops, you know, it's like for to to deal with like missing and murdered it's like first of all the cops are directly implicated half of them are involved in in these and like also there's like human trafficking that's happening at the same time you know which is like separate then separate from the sex worker industry you know so it's like it there's all these like layers and at the end of the day if people are vulnerable from our own communities and they don't feel safe to like speak up and talk about it, then we're doing something wrong. So whether you agree with sex work or not, it doesn't really fucking matter because sex workers need to feel safe in our own communities. Um, And also like people who are, you know, but that doesn't mean we can't also talk about the impacts of human trafficking. And when we, we all know like man camps, like, I feel like, you know, this is stuff that we all know, you know, as there's increased, um, activity for extraction on the territory, there's also increased, you know, gender-based violence by indigenous, faced by indigenous women and trans folks and queer folks and two-spirit folks, and also youth and children and minors, you know, and I think that just, actually naming these systems of violence um, and trying to visibilize them and actually understand what is consent and normalizing consent like are really key starting points. But yeah, I don't know. So I feel like, I hope that kind of mm-hmm. got, some, got some of those pieces going there.
1: Yeah, I think you yeah, look- made a really interesting point, but um, I think it would, might help if people understood that the first relationship with the state is is um as abusive as fuck. <laughs> I mean, we're not asked if we want to be a part of it. We're not asked if we mm-hmm. want to join. It. No, they just assign us a number mm-hmm. and we're like, oh hey, what's up? I'm here for the party. Mm-hmm. Like, and um, uh, so that and it's definitely reflected in every single part. And and so it feels does feel weird to go opposite that, you know, when it's become so normalized. But yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just going to add that, like, I mean, we're caught between, at least in the US context, between the Defense Production Act and the Violence Against Women Act. And they can't see, at least from an institutional perspective, the the colonial social order can't see how they're contradictory to each other and ultimately will produce, you know, and replicate that ongoing violence against our bodies.
1: Well, we've actually already seen them tactically using the MMIW Act with the federal officers that are allowed to go into our territories now with that act um, against um, land offenders and, you know, the Winnemuc Indian Colony. We believe that that's one of the ways that they have um, been able to come onto, you know, the land that they don't have jurisdiction over is that because they're actively um investigating under that um task force ability i guess exploiting that and i that's something i saw immediately like oh you you're gonna bring extra cops in and give them extra powers like how is this gonna how how i don't know i don't know mm-hmm. how anyone could have even thought that that was a good idea but uh yeah right. no one really has to so
2: <laughs> you know i no wanted to add at? No, I, one quick thing. Um, That's really interesting, too, because I think we don't talk about the history of the police too often and actually their historical role and what really how they came about in the United States and in Canada. In Canada, it was like the Queen's like... They were called the Northwestern Mounted Police and their job was literally to subjugate and subdue indigenous peoples in order to protect the pilgrims as they made their way west um, and to help to clear the land. And then later when Canada was formed to enforce residential schools and the past system, all kinds of things like that through the Indian Act, the United States is white vigilante colonists, okay, in the 13 colonies who actually started their own patrols, slave patrols, rangers, and scalp hunters. And that was the proto police. Okay. And so the origin story for the police is white vigilantes who are slave owners and, you know, settler colonists who are looking to police their newly uh, acquired, you know, stolen lands, and they're targeting literally, you know, and that's where the practice of scalping put a bounty on our heads. And it was it provided a financial incentive to criminal to to create this culture of you know, violence against indigenous peoples, but also black folks as well were being targeted. So if you were a black person or a native person at this time, and you were seen somewhere you were not supposed to be, you could just be jumped by basically, you know, these rangers. And that's the, the origins, you know? And it's even that like phrase of like uh, paddy wagon. We talk about that, you know, the paddy wagon, people get, you know, thrown into the paddy wagon. It comes from the etymology comes from slave patrols. Because um, it went slave patrols, and then it was like patrollers and patroller rollers, and then it became eventually paddy rollers, and then that's where the term phrase paddy wagon came from. So between the Antebellum South and the 13 colonies, you know, like those developments, it was rangers and literally scalp hunters. So that was the proto police. And like, so no wonder when we think about those colonial or- origins as white v- vigilante violence, settler nationalist violence, um, f- it, it's just like, it makes sense where they are today. And so again, and of course, you know, the United States is never going to bring into an act, a bill. They're not going to pass legislation that's ever going to system systemically, um, bring justice to indigenous peoples or indigenous women, you know, and also a quick note to what I said before of like, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you agree with sex worker or not, but also like, I think that it's also none of people's business and that there's no ethical work under capitalism. And that if people have the agency and they're, and they're, and they're in a, you know, like that's their damn choice, you know, and we shouldn't be stigmatizing people. And I'm, I'm really sad to see how much stigma, um, is being passed around you know, too. And I might be in a minority on this, but even with the red road too, like, I think like sobriety is extremely important. But at the end of the day, you know, if people are surviving, and they're still with us, then that's what matters the most. And even for sober folks who fall off the wagon, like the amount of stigma they face, you know, to then have to, you know, and also like, just also too like certain lifestyles, it's a coping me- mechanism at times. And like, yes, like ceremony can offer that, but you might not always be in those spaces and the type of trauma people are dealing with. So anyway, all around saying like stigmas is fucking deadly, but not in a good way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and yeah, I would like to see that that attitude shift as well, you know, especially in our more like radical indigenous spaces to, you know, allow people as long as they're not harming one another is like, you know, if you're, if your sobriety or lack of sobriety, isn't hurting me, that's like a different story, you know? Um, like it's, you have every right to say if someone's harming you, you know, to, 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 to create your own boundaries around that and to, li- to limit that exposure. But just on the day to day, you know, that stigma, I'm not here for it. So, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely and we suffer from that those attacks on who we are uh, through dehumanization, which you know of course, when um, people are dehumanized, their exploitation is expected. Um, and I think like you sort of identifying um, how policing works? Because, I mean, you know, if we look at Standing Rock, as you keep referencing, or any other front lines of the struggles in resistance to ongoing resource colonialism, the police are the front line to defend capital, to defend the colonial system. So, you know, I mean, even the movement to defund the police, it's like, what are we talking about? An economic struggle? Are we talking about something deeper? Um, So, uh, you know, I wanted to shift the conversation as we um, try to wrap things up towards, um, you know, the inevitable question of like, where do we go from here? And I think we've asked that a little bit, but you know, we're, we're stuck between this, um, green new deal, which basically is reinforcing exactly what you're, you know, you're, you're addressing part of its cores is that there will always be a legislated enforceable uh, component that is tied to the violence of the state, which is usually represented through the police and driven by capitalist interest. So it's it's deeply embedded in the um, colonial project, settler colonial and resource colonial projects. And then, you know, on, on the flip side of that, as part of a, a response has been, you know, the Red New Deal from the Red Nation, which a lot of leftists are embracing because it uses a lot of great buzzwords, but it's a largely plagiarized document. It's not original, and even the Red Nation acknowledges that in their text. Um, But the ultimate proposal is that this Marxist organization's Um, uh, proposition is for a decolonized authoritarian worker run state as their solution Um, and then on on another side of this we also have um, eco-fascists you know who are um, blaming migrants, you know, or overpopulation, and looking at a range of other, you know, responses. And ecofascism isn't just a unique expression from the right; it's also, you know, embedded in mm-hmm. like anarchist or left, you know, radical leftist spaces as well. Um, so you're, you you brought up the issue of like climate anxiety, um, and you know, it's 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 interesting because you know, and we we've, we've written a bit. Uh, of this, um, or about this with indigenous action. Um, but, you know, even, even that's sort of talking point, um, that people are using a lot is, is that indigenous people protect 80% of the world's biosphere. Um, uh, and, and we have this, uh, new, um, mm-hmm. report by the intergovernmental panel on climate change from the UN who are sounding, you know, even, much more as this sort of doomer alarm of the stakes being extremely high and the time frame being extremely limited. but then when we see like you know the, the responses, the reactions, um, these are some of the places that we're stuck between. So the question again is, where do we go from here? What, what strategies and tactics should we be focusing on um, from your perspective? You've brought up you know, sovereignty and you brought up some of these other things. I'm curious as to what your response
2: is yeah wow that's a lot Um, I think like also this red nation needs to pick up a dictionary look up the word decolonized (laughs) because come on Oh, it's that bad. You know, I mean, it just goes to show how bad things are. I think it's worse than it's ever been. I feel, you know, to be honest, Um, in terms of just critical thinking and even shared understandings around things, at least in my from my lived experience in my lifetime, um, where things are at. And yeah, I hear it all the time. These kind of eco fascist perspectives within leftist spaces of like, overpopulation is the problem. It's like, no, that is not that is not that is not the problem how many human beings are on this earth is not the problem, you know? And it's like, it comes down again to the systems of exploitation. And it's like, what we need is to actually dare to dream of something different instead of just reforming the same cycle of abuse again and again, and again, and again over the land as a resource. Like, you know, just coming, we need to back it up doctrine of discovery, terra nullius, and we need to, unwind this thinking and no longer look at the land as empty as the the peoples of the lands as non-existent as subhuman you know this is these are the this is the stuff that needs to be done and i think like Also, it really comes into that nation building piece as well. So it's that interpersonal and individual, you know, healing journey of dealing with our own traumas and whatever we can within our families and healing our lines for the next generations. But also how do we bring that back to our clans and into our nations and really rebuilding our structures um, you know, our, our long houses, our lodges, and how are we coming back to our original instructions? And I think that needs to be the focus for us as indigenous peoples is all of that. And like, honestly too, like, learn your languages as much as you can and speak to your elders, you know, as much as we can, because we're in a time where we're going to need this information and we're going to have to pass it on to the next generations. And at the end of the day, protecting our territory is the most important thing that we can be doing. And it's, gonna be and like you know recycling programs like half of these places go and burn recycling like this is not the solution and i think for folks on the outside for non-natives it's like smarten the fuck up like get it together this is sad this is really sad like for how long as indigenous peoples you know the and it's not about whether or not the earth will survive that's not the conversation, you know, it's going to be whether the ecosystems that as we know of them today will survive, you know, including us, right. And so it's not like the earth is not going to find a way to regenerate life one day, um, or that there will be some, some, you know, some survivors who are able to withstand, you know, but it's all this, it's the suffering in the meantime and who's being most, um, like proportionally impacted by that. And so I think like, you know, no more flashy campaigns, no more money to the state, no more money to NGOs, like grassroots sacred fire, you know, team up affinity group only, um, don't publicize what you're doing. No more talk, only action, you know, like call on the beaver nation if you must, you know what I'm saying? Like, and Elsie did it and they did it. They were successful and they were successful. They pushed Swin out. And that's something to say, you know, because at the end of the day, they have so much, you know, and there's a lot of you know, counterintelligence, you know, Gord Hill, he publishes so much stuff around counter co- uh, counterintelligence tactics and ways to prevent, you know, drone surveillance and all of these types of things. So we need to be taking it a little more seriously. Um, and not so like, like, set the egos to the side. You know, it's not about who you're snagging on the front lines. Okay. It's not about any of that shit. We need to seriously get it together and also too, I think like this is also not to say like um you know there's uh oh this one um I heard this one person say before like um uh his name he's uh from the Mohawk nation he's like a uh like a, I guess you could call it like a he's 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 very knowledgeable older generation like um I guess you could say an elder too you know, but he's very very super knowledgeable and he was like, you know prayers if you're hungry do you pray? No. Like you go out and you feed your family. You know what I mean? And I think like that, I really value that perspective. And I think like, but at the same time, we do need to also engage our ceremonies. And like, maybe this is something where we need to ask, I don't know, the star lodges for help, or, you know, that maybe there are, you know, our, whatever you want to call it, like, our, you know, our indigenous, like, power, you know, that's, like, beyond these, like, sort of settler views of, like, time and all this stuff, you know, like, we can tap into, um, and, and get some assistance, you know, but at the same time, and at, and at the same time, it's like, and for me, it's not or, 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 it's and, 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 we need to, all of these things at the same time, you know, so work on our trauma, fucking identify predatory behavior, uplift our, our sovereignty, our nation building, um, learn our territories, do what we can to be within the cycle of the natural world. Um, you know, and stop putting shit on social media, do it in the real life. And seriously, like it's, and it's going to be like, it's to the point now too, with like everybody and like, whatever I watch, TikTok. I don't know if that's whatever. I watch TikTok, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm not not using the internet. But at the same time, like it's at the point where, you know, the police in China, they have facial recognition technology in their fucking glasses and they scan a crowd just looking for warrants. Like this is not like the Snapchat filters, they're not just for you to look cute and to look like a puppy dog. They're literally, this is big technology. They are collecting so much data and they are practicing the, you know, they're they're fine tuning these technologies on the general population and you're uploading your face and it's facial recognition technology, that software, it's, it's interlinked, you know? And just like with the G20 summits, like whenever they put in a bunch of new infrastructure within the city to monitor what's happening, they don't take it out at the end. It's still there. So you're walking around and your your face, you're being monitored. You know, we are being monitored, whether it's actively by whatever piglets are being paid to listen to our podcast right now. Hello, FBI. Hello, RCMP. Hello, CSIS. How are you guys doing? Pay some bills. But anyway, you know, but or it's indirectly. And soon it's going to be done by artificial intelligence. It's going to be algorithms and it's already happening on Instagram. People talk about being shadow banned, you know? So all this type of stuff, like we need to seriously come correct with some critical thinking and that this is, it's not safe. We really are not safe and we need to also like adapt as such. I think that with the way that advocacy and even post, I don't know more, it was like, you know, we need to be visible and we need to share our voices, which is true. But there's also, you know, I think it's come almost to celebrity at this point. And, um, where are the priorities, you know, because at the end of the day and like, whatever, I'm already on shout outs, call outs, but like honor the earth, like they're not supporting people in the long term, you know, just like indigenous environmental N- network, like how many people, you know, had to deal with all of this state violence and where was the aftercare? Where was the system? Where was the support? Where was people getting money to be able to show up to court or even just to pay their bills or to get therapy or to get physiotherapy, you know, all the types of things that are being pushed onto our marginalized community members for certain people to build a pro- platform. And it's not a popular opinion and it's not. And it's like, anyway, I'm just going off. Yeah,
1: Go off. <laughs> That's what this section for. <laughs> sometimes we just need to it needs to be said
0: (laughs) yeah and uh, I mean the the whole idea of this show is just to go deeper and um you know part of our tagline one is we're autonomous anti-colonial anti-capitalist uh and we you know celebrate the bridges that burn that light our way or the wagons that burn that we burn have to burn to light our way and I think this Mm -hmm. is these are important critical conversations because these are desperate times. And, you know, the more that the state represses us, because the, the state violence is real and these nonprofit or NGOs that are just feeding people into that. So they can, you know, take some pictures and satisfy their funders and increase mm-hmm. their revenue streams. I mean, like Indian collective has like, you know, tens of millions of dollars now. Um, and, and, this sort of like, and we, we wrote about this, and I, I don't know if we're going to read this little part at the end, to Bearcat, but I, I guess we can here. We can add it in later or link to it. Um, but we talk about it being the colonizers' burden with this idea of um, you know the indigenous people protect eighty percent of the world's biosphere um, because you know the um, you know the the twisted logic. Of uh, settler colonialism and climate activism is to reduce our ways and beings to you know and in complex ongoing struggles to campaign talking points mm-hmm. that only prove that we deserve a seat at the table um, and and what we wrote is that it 's changed through arithmetic by way of better self marketing branding, and advertising. Um, When through ceremony and myriad of tactically dynamic direct actions, we protect all of existence, not just percentages. Um, And this is part of the problem with these talking points. You know, our power isn't found at the colonizer's table. It's found and rekindled um, in its well-fed flames. another thing that we wrote about was um, you know the forefront and I think you touched on this quite a bit is um, the forefront of indigenous climate justice groups uh, that proselytize the narrative of their own victimhood um, in terms of that increase funding streams to their nonprofit corporations to play their pay their bloated salaries in climate action protest um uh, Protestations, I guess, um, aka PR stunts with the legal team and retainer. You know, all all while mm-hmm. they compete for the spotlight and rally with celebrities to build organizational recognition and homogeneity of popular purpose, not to mention a standardization of the role, um, or the rote tactical and strategic stagnation, which, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking about marching in circles. We had these same conversations and critiques, you know, during the climate justice marches that they had in, uh, New York city where they had Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Like, you know, leading the march and indigenous people, you know, vying for that space at the front, it's just this indigenous struggle. This is our land. And now indigenous, um, you know, some of these nonprofit indigenous groups are celebrating that the um, IPCC report, uh, recent report um acknowledges colonialism and in references colonialism, but it also, I mean, most more, there are whole sections on tourism, <laughs> you know, it talks about tourism more than colonialism. You know, there's nothing that it's um, uh, committed to addressing on a systemic level when it's ultimately reinforcing itself and um, its machinations that are um, established on the destruction of mother earth and its people. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if you want to just wrap up any thoughts, any things that we missed um, you already were getting into the shout outs and call outs. So I don't know how much you need to do that or actually you haven't hit the shout outs yet. So if there's any, um, just you know, shout outs you want to give for for your work, thank you, thank you. Uh, things that you're working on, even if they're unrelated um, mm-hmm. to this, because you know, that's part of the issue I have too, is just like the, com- the, 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 logic of nonprofit climate justice activism is is that it puts people in these compartments it's like oh this is their Mm -hmm. issue this is what they're working on this is what this organization is working on it's just like no we all have shared responsibility because we are living in this planet that is being burned by capitalists and colonizers
2: yeah. Wow. So many, so many like wrapping up thoughts, but, um, I don't know. I just want to add to like, you know, the internet that was a military invent, like this was developed through the, through the military and its applications are military. Okay. And even when we look at, you know, there was on TikTok recently. They are like, oh, what to do when, like, a robot dog polices the U.S.-Mexico border? You know, like, this is – it's not a joke. Like, and it's coming so fast. And we think that regular degular cops suck. Like, imagine when they're robots. You know, like, the coming robocop apocalypse is not going to be fun. And it's, like, yeah, it's coming quickly. Um, so I really just, like, we need to – get that together a little bit. I just wanted to add that because this is something I've just been really on um, and just the view of like Western technology as superior when it clearly isn't. And even looking at settler colonialism as a set of technologies and the way that green capitalism is like fits right into that because it's the next, it's assimilating dissent and all of that And all of that, you know, all of that, you know, momentum that could be poured into because, you know, there's obviously, you know, young people coming up 20, 19, 18 years old, like they know, they know how bad we of a situation they are and people do have a sense of anxiety and panic and they want to do something and they want to do direct action but they just don't have anywhere to connect to and the spaces that do um have access to them are bringing them back inside of the machine you know so it's really it's a lot of work cut out for us um and also too just on land trauma like i think it's really important to recognize that this is something that we're all dealing with as indigenous peoples and it's also so culturally specific you know depending on your sacred sites and also your lived experiences and where you've grown up um so i just like i'm definitely always interested to hear uh, you know what other people have to say about this or how it's impacted them um because it can sometimes be hard always speaking into the negative of like articulating the violence um and it's really interesting to sort of of see and that's where I'm kind of starting to think now is like where does that sort of land healing um come and you know like and I see it especially in you know some of my peers who are doing a lot of like food sovereignty work around seed saving planting harvesting and there's a lot there that's super generative um yeah and even to like learning you know and practicing remediation techniques and pulling out these like heavy metals from our territories like how are we going to once we reach our futurity you know our anti-colonial decolonial you know f- sovereign future you know how are we going to heal the land you know that we you know, that where's the reciprocity back to the territory. So yeah, I guess for call, um, shout outs, I guess, um, yeah. Buckskin babes or Moose tanning collective. We don't have any social media yet. Uh, one day we will, I guess we'll just send it to you guys. You can reshare us. Um, I have been working on, um, what I like to call a life affirming art practice. Um, I have an Instagram handle it's called scrim scrap with, uh, Um, yeah, I don't know. I've been just trying to lay low and make it through, but it's really, it's really nice to speak with folks and just to feel connected um, and just to address all of these things. Like it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of baggage I think um, that we're all dealing with within the climate justice movement. And even within, you know, our own sovereignty movements and all of those sort of like internal politics of the, Abusers and sellouts, and you know the impacts of NGOization because it definitely does, you know, it kick it kicks it kicks a girl when she's down to see, you know, to see everybody just kind of it's it's really hard to you know try to divest from a system that everyone's participating in, you know. So it's really important to build those networks of mutual aid and to reach out to each other. So I just want to say, you know, Nyawa to. Bearcat and Clee for inviting me out. And, uh, you know, fuck Earth Day, man. Every day is Earth Day. Um, you know, I don't know. People used to just turn their lights off for an hour. It's not going to do nothing. Like, we need, to, we need yeah. a little something more than that. I, there's,
0: there's, there's, a, there's a nice um, assertion that some of the folks that I'm, I know um, put out there every Earth Day, they're, they're like, uh, Earth Night is greater than Earth Day.
1: <laughs> Not night. <nice. laughs> Along those yeah. lines i like to say, if anything, let's let's co-op that shit, make it beaver day. Beaver night. Yes. Beaver day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well thank you so much for coming on and I was very excited to get a chance to talk to you and um you know, you're just very inspiring your work and um uh, thank you for all the, the effort and the work that you put in. It's not it does not go unnoticed even though sometimes it feels like it even though sometimes <laughs> everything you say makes everyone mad <laughs> i like it <laughs> yeah and,
0: and I, I i appreciate like you know and i i, I just want to emphasize this because i think there's a lot of young people especially and i think that's you know you're talking about folks who are they want to do shit they're they have that panic that anxiety and they want to rush to the front lines and who is it managed by these nonprofit Mm -hmm. capitalists who are you know securing their streams to funders um or you know groups you know marxist groups who are trying to be the vanguard and you know pull people in into their like um agendas their platforms um when you know we even with ien as you mentioned like you know this is i guess a bit of my call out thing, too, is um, like they've issued a report last year where I think they said that um, uh, indigenous resistance to 20 fossil fuel projects has stopped or delayed carbon emissions equivalent to approximately 25% of US and Canada's overall emissions. Um, So they were like, you know, these climate activists were um, revealing the power of direct action, but um, the critique is is that they've also assigned their campaigns more credit than is due, um, particularly because they cited losses like Dakota Access Pipeline and Line Three projects in their reports, um, but it, you know, to me, it, it's it's the concern is is that it tends towards a diluted climate optimism, um, where if we're not being honest with and about the failings of our movements, what is yeah. shifting tactics and and more importantly adjusting our overall strategies toward the end of yet more changing statistics matters um you know it's basically a sales a dishonest sales pitch that sidesteps important conversations of what is actually working to stop climate catastrophe um and you know i think that basically i mean i'm just not convinced that making this about a numbers game to celebrate the disrupting of 20 5% Five percent of an industry, when we've lost over ninety-eight percent of the battles in a war with such high stakes, um, mm-hmm. particularly when these activist campaigns have spent hundreds of millions of dollars, with thousands of our relatives being jailed and dragged through the racist court systems, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and it's so it's it's hard not to be pessimistic. Um, but I think again, like the point I want to get at is just like what you're saying, and I think what you also represent in this you know, discussion, this critique is, is that, you know, um, it's not a persistent job or role. It's our, our responsibility. And especially when we center our lives, or at least we, we, uh, part, part of our lives is in orbit to or proximity to ceremony. And we try to bring that back and connect that more um, around these sacred fires and so forth, or whatever teachings people have, you know, we, we, we find that assurance and understanding and it, um, you know, as as it's been articulated through teachers that I've had and um, uh, I don't want to just take up too much time talking about this because again, we'll link to just the thing that we wrote about this and published. Um, but you know, everybody says climate changes the greatest threat to humanity, well, it's a consequence of the war against Mother Earth. And if we don't understand things in those terms and look at the spiritual tools that we have to address these wars, because they've happened before, you know, worlds have ended before, but it's a, it's a, it's a cycle. And when you talk about future futurity, you know, we, before we started recording in this podcast, we talked about, you know, the difference between settler futurity and indigenous futurity and the cyclical understandings of how we're connected. I think that that's part of it. Um, and that's where we, we break uh, from this idea of being the colonizers' burden, um, because I mean, for me, and I think you know, we hopefully would all agree here. I think that's why we're you know here sharing the space is that we don't want an ecologically friendly settler colonial state. We seek to abolish its very existence.
2: Exactly. Like you can put windmills on the cities all you want, but settler colonialism is not sustainable and nor, nor should it be, you know, nor can it be. And I think like just even just reorienting the conversation to, again, that root point of the war against mother earth is so critical and just this worldview and that comes out of these Christian, you know, these Christian, you know, the popple bulls and like the origins of slavery and, you know, what eventually becomes chattel slavery and all these intersections, you know, where it's like anti-black racism is also part of this conversation of settler colonialism that's built wealth, um, for the settler colonial project. And it's just, you know, it's, it's extremely, the violence is, extremely intersectional and like so must our resistance be you know and i just really appreciate everything you're saying there clear to ground the conversation and yeah i don't know i'm very i feel i feel good i feel like excited and like some kind of embers inside of me you know um because we have a lot of collective power and it just goes to show that what we're doing and like also too, like, let's be real. A lot of that biodiversity is like, even in the Amazon, you know, you've got uncontacted nations that are striking down like Mormons, you know, by the, by the river, like every day. And, you know, so it's like, it's so decentralized what a lot of our work is and as you know indigenous people all over the world you know who are protecting our traditional territories like it's extremely decentralized and it's based in that responsibility you know for it's an inherent responsibility like we have as members of a family to protect our future and protect the natural world which gives us everything you know our identity our language our laws our our survivance our thrivance so yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Bearcat. Did you want to, I did not I don't think you threw a shout out or call out out there. Anything in closing as well?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I got, I got a little something. Um, well, I guess my, my, my call out would be, you know, just a big fuck you to Deb Holland, her whole crew, her whole team, whatever. Um, and then um, I'd like to give a shout out to our, our, our my sister Bearcub Cub. She just graduated with a team of uh, folks that are doing um, indigenous fire practitioners um, training up in the Pacific Northwest where they're training to do backburns and learning how to navigate and to caretake the land with um, fire. And um, basically doing like wildland firefighting, except for in a more proactive approach and taking back Mm -hmm. their um ancestral roles in that that way. I think it's a really cool program and um I think it's it's pretty badass to be out there in in the in the, you know, out in the out in the woods, out in the bush, doing what they do. So um big shout out to their whole crew and uh congratulations on all of you who have passed and keep keep up keep it up keep trying again if you you know if you didn't actually pass. Um because we need more people like that and we need more people out there supporting these kind of like uh these people out there that are doing this work and that are working with elders of the land and um, taking on that responsibility—it's a lot of work. So, yeah,
2: yeah, I love that controlled burning. Um, I actually have one more sh- um call out, and this is more to <laughs> This is one one last call out. This is something we've been dealing with um up here, at, up here quite a bit. But I'm sure you all have been dealing with it. And um, there's two categories. <laughs> okay, so one of them, I. I'm gonna speak, you know, obviously we all know the issue with pretendians, and we're just gonna say fuck all pretendians. But also for people who are intergenerational, who are intergenerationally reconnecting, okay, who've grown up white, um, and, and even, maybe even into their adulthood as white folks, and it wasn't through, the foster care system that they were disconnected you know what i mean like it's not a 60 scoop millennial scoop situation and i'm not speaking to those like lived experiences as indigenous people i'm speaking to folks who are the first one in several generations they've been intergenerationally white for several generations and now they're starting to reconnect um to indigenous identity and obviously that's nation specific as to whether or not you're claimed back But um, there's been a lot of discussion around this and other people have said it before me, uh, but I just want to add an echo to that is like, you should not be applying to scholarships that are meant for indigenous students, you should not be the first one lining up for funding, you should not be the first one in a leadership position, You, you have to be self-reflexive around your position as someone who's coming into an indigenous identity and that you can be extractive exploitative and also you can enter, you can also culturally appropriate as well. Um, and like even within our own communities and nations, not all knowledges and protocols are open for everybody to partake in. Um, and that even certain society, like there's, there's initiation, there's protocol, there's process and, not everything is open to everyone. Um, and just to kind of keep that same energy and sort of, you know, if you're, um, someone who has grown up white and lived white your entire life, and then you find out you have indigenous ancestry and you're doing the work to reconnect in a good way, um, to those ties and to those family, um, members and to your nation. And that's a reciprocal claim. Um, you know, then like, please be also aware of your position in community and that, um, you should not be the first one who is getting support and having a role of leadership. And actually to add to that, I also want to encourage, um, folks who are entering that type of journey to ensure that they actually verify their identity and their claims before, identifying. Um, I think people tend to run with blood myths in their family. And so it's like check your settler blood myth, like do a background check on your settler blood myth before starting identifying as dig- as indigenous. Um and all too often you'll see that actually it, it it's not always the case, you know? And especially in certain regions, there's a lot of like in the quebecois like to think of themselves as like whatever, you know, they're, they're really bad for it. And anyway, all that to be said is like, you know, settlers check your damn blood myths before you start identifying as indigenous. And if you're like legitimately intergenerationally reconnecting, like be mindful of the power and privilege that you hold. And, uh, don't, don't be the first one applying for funding or putting up a position of leadership and maybe some revitalization practices should be going, uh, to, should be, more widespread in community before you engage in them. That's my two cents.
0: You just started like the topic of a whole nother show that we need to <laughs> dig into. Uh, we need to have you back as a guest, Amanda. Uh, so much to talk about that issue alone and so many of yeah. the other points that we've just sort of brushed on. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Bearcat, as well, for co-hosting. I'm really excited to get back into the podcast and for all of y'all who have been waiting for us to do uh, new shows. We are doing shorter shows. We're going to integrate video as you see here. um, And we're going to keep them punchy and we're going to keep them claws out. So thanks. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: You can find this broadcast on any of the usual podcast platforms or at
1: indigenousaction.org backslash podcast email us pics of burning cop cars burning churches burning forts or any questions or topics you'd like to hear us go claws out on at iainfo at protonmail.com